Way back in year one, episode six, the name Jack Valentine was brought up. We learned that his story was that of a legend from Norwich, England. The character was so interesting to me that I devoted an entire episode to him in episode 18, The True Story of Jack Valentine. I used the word true loosely and dug up and made up some information on his backstory. At the time, it didn't occur to me how often the name Jack pops up in English folklore, nursery rhymes, and everyday objects. Jack be nimble. Jack be quick and Jack jump over the candlestick. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. Once upon a time there lived a poor widow and her son Jack. One day Jack's mother told him to sell their only cow. Jack went to the market and on the way he met a man who wanted to buy his cow. Jack asked, what will you give me in return for my cow? The man answered, I will give you five magic beans. Jack took the magic beans and gave the man the cow. But when he reached home, Jack's mother was very angry. She said, you fool, he took away your cow and gave you some beans. She threw the beans out the window. Jack was very sad and went to sleep without dinner. We all know what happens next, of course. Then there's little Jack Horner, who sat in the corner, eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, What a good boy am I. This is the house that Jack built. This is the cheese that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the rat that ate the cheese that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cat that chased the rat that ate the cheese that lay in the house that Jack built. And Jack Spratt, who could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean. And so between them both, you see, they licked the platter clean. According to BehindTheName.com, the name Jack is derived from Jackin, an earlier Jankin, a medieval diminutive of John. There could be some early influence from the unrelated French name Jacques. It's often regarded as an independent name. During the Middle Ages, it was very common, and it became a slang word meaning man. Jack was often used to describe an ordinary man. It was also used when describing various tools or devices that could aid a person in work. Jack hammer, jack knife, a carjack. It's used in the name of professions like lumberjack or steeplejack. You could play a game of jacks or play with a jack-in-the-box. If you live in England, you may fly the Union Jack flag as you listen to the Rolling Stones jumping Jack Flash. One of my favorite authors, Neil Gaiman, is from across the pond and writes wonderfully scary books for children and adults alike. One of my top three books of all time, The Graveyard Book, employs the use of Jacks in a frightfully splendid way. The main antagonist in the story is a man named Jack Frost. He's not the fellow that brings in winter and cold weather, rather he's a mysterious man who kills the main character's family at the beginning of the book with a sharp knife and intends on doing the same to that character, named Nobody Owens, or Bod for short. Jack Frost, we learn, is a member of a top-secret group known as the Jacks of All Trades. The organization has been around for thousands of years, waging an endless battle against their enemies. While we learn that their numbers are many, the ones mentioned in the book are Jack Dandy, Jack Nimble, Jack Catch, Jack Frost, and Jack Tar. Gaiman pulled each of these characters from famous Jacks in history. 
I could go on about the book, but that's not what this episode is about. I will recommend that you read it sometime. It's meant for young adults, but you'll enjoy it. One obvious instance of the English using the name Jack to describe an unknown assailant is Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, as many of you know, was an unidentified serial killer who took a number of lives in the fall of 1888. The murders took place mainly in the Whitechapel district of London, most of which was considered to be slums. Many of his victims were prostitutes. Originally, the murderer was known as the Whitechapel Murderer. It was only when the Central News Agency of London received a letter dated September 25, 1888, that the murderer became known as Jack the Ripper. In the letter, titled Dear Boss, the killer gave himself the nickname, My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Since Jack has never been identified, many believe that the letter was a hoax, written by a fan of the storyline, or perhaps even the newspaper itself, in order to keep up interest in the story. Jack the Ripper will go down as one of the most infamous serial killers of all time, and will likely never know who he was. So if we aren't here for the Neil Gaiman book, or Jack the Ripper, then why are we here? Let's get to it. Episode 53, Every Man Jack. 50 years before Jack the Ripper, London experienced another diabolical Jack in the form of a man that came to be known as Spring-Heeled Jack. But to truly get to the root of who or what Spring-Heeled Jack is, we have to go back even further to 1803 and the Hammersmith Ghost. Beginning in November of 1803, numerous people in the Hammersmith area claimed to have been attacked by, or at least spotted, a ghost lurking about. Locals believed that the ghost was that of a man who had killed himself the year before. Beliefs at the time were that he shouldn't have been buried in the church cemetery, as it was consecrated ground. A suicide victim's soul could never truly be at rest there. The ghost, though spotted by many, seemed to appear differently for different people. Some saw it as a very tall figure, dressed in white. Others thought that the apparition wore clothing made of calfskin, and still others noticed horns atop his head and eyeballs made of glass. Word of the ghost began to travel quickly after a pair of women at different times both died of fright and shock after walking near the church graveyard. A man named Thomas Groom had his throat grabbed by an invisible assailant while walking through the graveyard at night. In December of that same year, a night watchman spotted the ghost and chased after it. It vanished before his eyes as he got close. Soon, several citizens' armed patrol groups formed. They would take turns walking the streets in the evening, hoping to catch the ghost. London had no organized police force at the time. Locals were going to have to do it themselves. One member of a patrol group named Francis Smith was out late on the evening of January 3, 1804. The 29-year-old held a shotgun at the ready. Just after 11 p.m., Smith saw something in all white. He yelled out, Damn you! Who are you? And what are you? Before the thing could answer, Smith fired a shot. A bricklayer named Thomas Millwood, dressed in the all-white clothing of his trade, lay dead on the ground with a shotgun wound to the left side of his jaw. He was dead. 
After the medical examiner looked him over, he noticed that some of the shot tore right through his vertebrae. The trial that followed would be discussed in London's courts for 180 years. Originally, Francis Smith was found guilty by a jury of his peers. His lawyer took the case before the king, and the initial sentence of hanging and dissection was commuted to a year's hard labor. As to whether murder, when caused by a mistaken belief, was a sufficient defense, the courts argued on the subject well into 1984 and decided that it was. So there were predecessors to our friend Jack. It's easy to see how, in those times, a story of an evil being lurking the streets could spread and cause folks to lock their doors at night. Nowadays, with technology and social media and 24-hour news channels, we get bored so quickly and want to move on to the next thing. When something spread fear in a community or continent back then, it tended to stick around. The first official report of a Spring-Heeled Jack sighting occurred in 1837. Stories continued off and on until 1904. One may very well have spent their entire adult life peering over their shoulder, curious as to whether the stories were true or not. In October of 1837, a young lady named Mary Stevens was walking alone from her parents' home to her job as a servant. Suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, a stranger leapt out at her from a dark alley. He pinned Stevens to the ground and began kissing her face and ripping at her clothing. When he touched her skin, she reportedly said that his hands were cold and clammy as those of a corpse. Mary Stevens screamed loud and hard, frightening the attacker and bringing several nearby residents out from their homes. The man, well, she assumed it was a man, fled from the scene quickly. A search party was organized, but nothing came of it. It would be just the first of a long string of similar attacks. On the very next day, in the same general location, it struck again. As a carriage approached, the thing jumped down in front of it, causing the coachman to lose control of the carriage, crash into a wall, and injure himself severely. Witnesses claimed to have seen the attacker escape the scene by jumping over a nine-foot wall. He reportedly let out a high-pitched cackle as he did so. Due to these eyewitness reports, the press and public soon dubbed him Spring-Heeled Jack. A few months later, on January 9th of 1838, during a public session at the mansion home of the Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan read aloud a letter he'd received a few days earlier. The newspapers got a hold of the letter and shared it around the country. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and moreover that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. At one house the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse-than-brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a specter clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never, from that moment, been in her senses. The affair has now been going on for some time, and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. 
Lord Mayor Cohen was skeptical at first, but as news spread, he began to receive letters from all over, claiming to have seen Spring-Heeled Jack, or to have fallen prey to his wicked pranks. He thought the reports to be the greatest exaggerations, but also had people whom he trusted offering stories of their own. A reward was put out for information regarding Spring-Heeled Jack. Was it a ghost, a bear, the devil here on earth? No one knew, but steady reports of attacks with claws and a high-jumping criminal were coming in from everywhere. Soon it was revealed that Spring-Heeled Jack even had the power to breathe blue and white red-hot flames. Two of the most well-known incidents happened in February of 1838. On the 19th, young Jane Alsop opened the door of her home after hearing a man yelling from the road. It appeared to her to be a police officer, and he told her as much, requesting her to bring a light. We've caught Spring-Heeled Jack here in the lane. She approached the cloaked man with a candle and offered it to him. As she did, he threw off his cloak, revealing a hideous form. She noticed his eyes first, red balls of fire, and then he began vomiting blue and white flames from his mouth. According to Jane, he wore a large helmet and tight-fitting clothing, almost like a second skin. She felt metal claws tearing at her clothing as she fought to get away. Jane kicked at her attacker and ran off towards her home. The beast caught up to her on the porch and slashed at her neck and arms until the door opened again and two of the girl's sisters emerged. As Spring-Heeled Jack fled, his high-pitched cackles echoed off the neighboring houses. Nine days later, on February 28, 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister were returning home after visiting their brother. The pair were passing along Green Dragon Alley when they saw a tall figure standing in the passageway before them. They approached the man carefully and tried to pass. The cloaked figure roared and launched a quantity of blue flame in her face. Lucy, temporarily blinded, fell to the ground. At this point, the girl's brother heard the screams and rushed to Green Dragon Alley. He saw his sister Lucy on the ground in a fit. The other sister was trying to calm her. The pair took Lucy home, and her sister described the attacker the best she could. He was tall, thin, and according to her, had a gentlemanly appearance. He wore a cloak and carried a small lamp, similar to the ones used by officers of the law. The attacker didn't touch the girls, nor speak, but when he heard the brother approaching, he darted off, leaping over a wall. After these attacks, a man named Thomas Milbank was said to be bragging about being Spring-Heeled Jack at a local tavern. He was arrested and tried at Lambeth Street Court. When it came time for the verdict, he was able to avoid conviction based on the fact that he couldn't breathe fire. Both Jane Alsop and Lucy Scales insisted that their attacker could breathe fire. As Queen Victoria began her rule, bringing about the Victorian era, Spring-Heeled Jack was on the minds and lips of an entire country. Despite this popularity, reports of appearances became less frequent, but also more widespread. He was soon spotted throughout Scotland and other parts of Great Britain. Things stayed fairly quiet until five years later in 1843, when a number of sightings swept the country. One person who came in contact with Spring-Heeled Jack described him by saying that he was the very image of the devil himself, with horns and eyes of flame. There were various attacks on carriage drivers and mail coaches, and in July of 1847, a military man disguised in a skin coat, horns, and a mask attacked two women and was caught and convicted. 
Spring-heeled jack copycats were becoming more frequent. Whether or not there was a real jack was still up for debate, but so many people had crafted their own versions, it didn't matter. Someone, monster or man, was taking advantage of the widespread fear. After a few decades in hiding, he popped up again in the early 1870s. In November of 1872, a mysterious, terrifying figure began to show up late in the evening. Papers were quick to point out that it was Spring-Heeled Jack, who had terrified a past generation. In May of 1873, numerous sightings were reported in Sheffield. The last notable Jack sighting took place in August of 1877. A soldier on watch at the north camp of Aldershot Garrison peered out into the darkness and noticed the outline of a strange, hulking figure. Whatever it was advanced towards him, despite the soldier commanding him to stop. Before the soldier could get off a shot, the man was beside him and delivered several slaps to the soldier's face. A second guard shot at him and reportedly hit him, but it had no effect. The figure laughed in its high-pitched tone, turned, and bounded off into the darkness. The second soldier reported that the leaps were astonishing in both height and distance covered. The soldiers at Aldershot were in such a panic that orders came down from above to shoot the night terror on sight, no questions asked. In the fall of 1877, Springhill Jack was spotted in Lincolnshire. An angry mob chased him down and cornered Jack with numerous residents firing weapons at him. Either they all missed, or Jack was bulletproof, as, like so many times before, he leapt up and out of harm's way. There were confirmed sightings in 1887 and again in 1904, which would turn out to be the last reported by papers at that time. Springhill Jack left his mark on London and much of Great Britain, weaving himself into Victorian pop culture. He became the stuff of legend, appearing in numerous Penny Dreadfuls and theatrical performances. For a time, the name Springhill Jack was used as the name of the devil in many Punch and Judy shows. For years after, especially in London, Springhill Jack was used as a sort of boogeyman with parents threatening their children to behave. If they weren't good, Jack would pay them a visit and watch them through their window at night. It didn't matter how high up the bedroom was, Jack could reach. What's interesting is that initially Jack was portrayed as a villain, but then slowly folks began writing him into more heroic roles. He became sort of a precursor to masked avenging superheroes. There are of course skeptics, and then there are some who believe in the paranormal presence of Spring-Heeled Jack. The skeptics believe that all of it was nothing more than mass hysteria. The devil and the boogeyman had been around for years, this was nothing more than exaggerated urban myths to sell newspapers and keep people in their homes. Some believe that Springhill Jack could be extraterrestrial in nature, summoned from a planet where they can jump, spit fire, and grow claws. In what, dear listeners, do you believe? Rowdy kids with nothing but time on their hands? A few disturbed individuals that perform tricks during a time when the boogeyman would get all the blame? Or like the Lord Mayor himself, is this something that could be possible? A form of man or the devil himself with abilities not known to ordinary individuals like you and I? The name still gets brought up now and then when someone sees something they can't explain. A human form darts across the highway, leaping over the median and up and out of sight quicker than a flash. Spring-heeled Jack? Or just an overactive mind playing tricks on you? We may never know. 
Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about all the great merchandise available at the shop. I'll have some new designs coming soon. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.